0: Now, as we turn to your holy scriptures, we pray that your spirit, Lord, would provide for us understanding. Lord, I pray that you would move us beyond the limitations of our sinfulness and our finitude to open up our ears to hear the message proclaimed from all eternity of truth of Jesus Christ, the only Savior and Lord. We confess with the great doxology and the worship of Jude, the author of your book and scripture that encourages our souls today that to God alone, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forevermore, amen. Lord, it is the glory, the authority, and the power, and the saving work of Jesus Christ that we sing of today, that we confess, and that we seek to understand. I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, Lord, in the hearing of your word and the partaking of your table in our walk with you, in our conviction of the truth, and our ability to share it with others. In all of this, that your kingdom might grow, your people be equipped, and your name might be glorified to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, today in our communion series, it's been a while since I've preached a communion Sunday, it seems, and last we were in the scriptures on this first Sunday of the month. We had finished up a series in 2 Peter. If you guys could bring up those lights back there, that'd be great. So First and 2 Peter we covered, and I had plans to then move to the book of Jude, which we opened today. The reason being is Jude is sort of a companion text and has striking parallels with Second Peter, particularly 2 Peter chapter 2, and this book, which is just one chapter, have a lot of overlap. And so today, as we open the book of Jude, I trust that you will find some similarities and some reinforcing through multiple voices in the authors of Scripture to the importance of having a firmly rooted faith so as to stand against the enemies of Christ's church and the enemies of our souls, which is an abiding theme in Jude as well. Today we will cover, Lord willing, verses 1 through 7 as we introduce this book. And The title of this morning's message is A Call to Arms. A call to arms against the enemies of the church is really the motivation, I would argue the primary one, for Jude writing to encourage the early saints. The aim, therefore, of our sermon today is to strengthen the hearer in light of the power and promises of Jesus Christ. The power and promises of Jesus Christ in his person and in the accomplishments of Calvary is sufficient to strengthen us against any enemies of our soul or any enemies of the church. And so today we turn to, this, to the, these words as a resource for any enemies we might face as well. With that introduction and with your Bible open to the book of Jude, would you stand as you're able out of reverence for the word of God and let us hear the scriptures proclaimed in verses 1 through 7. Here is the holy word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called and beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Now I want to remind you, "...although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The epistle of Jude indeed contains striking parallels to the second letter of Peter. So if you turn back a few pages to the second uh, epistle of Peter, we are reminded and warned of the reality of false prophets among us, putting ourselves in the shoes of the early church in verse 1 when Peter declares false prophets rose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them we hear a lot of similarities and then we go on to read of a what we have identified a reckoning perspective that the author endorses in order for us to keep the correct view from God's sovereign vantage point of the reality of His power, glory, majesty, and authority, and dominion in spite of enemies that would seek to threaten to undo the work of the Lord in history through His advancing church. And this reckoning perspective, and to establish this reckoning perspective or reinforce it in the minds of his readers, Peter summons examples from the fallen angels, the ancient world in the time of Noah during the great flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and righteous Lot. In spite of the trials that faced God's people during this time, these times, nevertheless, we find that God had, in these situations, uh, intervened in judgment against His enemies and also salvation for His people. So much like this framework, Jude now reinforces this reckoning perspective, if you will, by citing similar examples of God's authority in spite of affliction. So much co- uh, parallel, so much exists and similarity between these two records in Scripture, that most scholars believe that they share some source material. Perhaps Jude wrote first, many, would assume, many assume, and then Peter used Jude's book as a reference point to share similar exhortations to the church when he was writing. Second Peter 2 shares, therefore, some of these same concerns and cites identical references to emphasize the weighty situation facing early believers, the early church. The enemies of Christ were active in the first century of the early church, and many yet remain today. However, the weapons that were provided them through the words of the apostles like Peter or other disciples like Jude were sufficient to stand against the enemy. This call to arms, if people would heed it, would give the church sufficient ground, as we've said before in 2 Peter, to stand ready for anything that would seek to assail the work of Christ through the church. These warnings and instructions of the New Testament, we need to take them seriously and heed them today, but also to heed them in faith that they will be sufficient to grant to us the discernment and the conviction to stand when our faith is challenged. Books like these set the tone for a vigilance, and an endurance and a perseverance and a conviction that no doubt inspired the early councils and creeds of the church, wherein a clear biblical understanding in many cases was hammered out in the context of enemies, heresies, false ideas, and popular opinions that in some cases were opposed by a small minority, but they ended up winning the day because they had the Word of God and His Spirit on their side. And as they took that stand, the Lord was faithful and rewarded their diligence and their conviction by an abiding body of confessional work of the church throughout history as to the clarity and the teaching of who Christ is and what the gospel is and so forth. No doubt this inspiration came from books like Jude and First and Second Peter. This shows us both in church history and in the Word this principle that God has used his enemies at every stage of the game and in every era of history to strengthen the foundations of the true church in every age. I love to think of God as a judo master, you know, that principle of using the enemy's force against him, turning it to your advantage, He throws a punch and you use that energy and pull it and do more destruction to him than you would otherwise do. So this is how the Lord works. He uses the plans of the enemy to his own advantage. Thus, even his enemies become his servants uh, unwittingly to them to advance the cause of his great name. God has done this in every age and may he do it in ours as well. May we follow the example, therefore, laid out for us in the instructions of Jude and also in the early church. It would seem appropriate to me in this introduction to this book to take it in light of the closing doxology. And I want to suggest to you a test, a test that stands in every age and a test whereby every philosophy or idea or proposition ought to be held accountable. When we read the final verse of Jude, verse 25... We have these glorious words, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be four things, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. The glorious doxology of verses 24 and 25, I submit, serve as a standard to test the philosophies, the teachings of any age. So let us be vigilant, and perhaps we could frame it this way, to ask, is this proposition sound? How does this claim measure up? Or does this idea, how does this idea stand in light of the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ? Does this idea, does this claim, does this this teaching, does this doctrine, does this philosophy, how does it measure up in light of the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ? That is the thematic structure of this short yet powerful book. And I submit to you that if we keep that mindset in place, The glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, as it is revealed in Holy Scripture of Jesus Christ as our standard, whereby to measure all uh, other claims or all other ideas, we'll be faithful to what the Apostle Paul also commissioned the church to do, which is to take every thought captive to the obedience of our Lord Jesus. So let's see in our study today how Jude opens his scriptures in this context And I just want to give you a heading here in three main points as we introduce this book. Jude opens his letter with reference to three parties, if you will. First of all, the church. Secondly, false teachers. And thirdly, Jesus himself. So Jude opens his letter with reference first to the church. The church as those sharing salvation in common, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, he opens his letter with reference to false teachers. False teachers as undercover enemies, if you will. And thirdly, he opens his letter with reference to Jesus, Jesus as Master and Lord revealed in Scripture, verses 5 through 7. So that'll be the basic format for today's sermon. First of all, Jude opens his letter referencing the church and identifying the church as those sharing salvation in common. Jude, verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ And brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is a classic opening of an epistle. Now, if you sit down and write a letter, maybe some of you homeschool students know the basic you know, categories of a letter or elements of a letter. And as I recall, it typically opens with a salutation. So some of you kids, have you written a letter to a pen pal and sent it, put the stamp on and sent it in the mail? Your friend, your cousin opens it. That's common in our house. Cousins send letters back and forth from Washington State. So you rip it open, you unfold the letter, and it's common to see at the top. Dear Vera, it's usually the girls are the ones disciplined to write one another. "Uh, It's good to hear from, it was good to hear from you and I'm writing and hope that you're having fun at your birthday, or had fun at your birthday party. So that'd be the salutation and addressing the person to whom the letter is written. And so Jude likewise opens with a salutation. He introduces himself and then he identifies Uh, the audience, and then he introduces the occasion, author, audience, and occasion. And this might be a good time just to remind you that when you're studying a book of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, or especially an epistle, which is a letter written from one party, often an apostle, to encourage a body of believers, the early church in this case, that those are three questions that will help you to get the context of the book, ask yourself, who is the author? What do we know about him? Who is the audience? To whom is he writing? And thirdly, the occasion. What is the reason that he is writing the letter? Those are just three basic Bible study questions. These three are answered in the first three verses. First of all, the author, Jude. We are introduced to him in verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That's an interesting tidbit. And though we don't know for certain most scholars agree that this is Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ. You could say half-brother of Jesus. So we had a little trivia question in our house this week, and I'll confess I have failed on this one. I brushed up a little bit on my knowledge since. But kids, let's see if any of you guys know the names of the brothers of Jesus. So there's four half-brothers that Jesus had. Does anyone, can anyone shout out one of their names? Simon, Simon is one. How about another one? Anybody? James. James is another. Uh, Oh, good guess, John. Not John, but think of junior. So remember Mary and Joseph? So there's a junior in the family. Who would that be? So Joseph. I gave it away. So the four brothers, there's uh, Joseph, Simeon, James, and Jude. And it's interesting, if you wanted to do just a little bit of research, we try to, uh, we look at a few data points in scripture and then uh, imagine how the Lord worked in the family of Jesus himself, which is quite a fascinating question. In John 7, 5, it is interesting that Jesus' own family members doubted who he was. His brothers, his four brothers did not believe in him presumably until he rose from the dead. So if you compare John 7, 5, which gives just a little anecdote the biography of Jesus' family, and the fact that his brothers did not believe in him. But then you compare that to Acts 1.14, where there's a whole group of early disciples that are waiting for the visitation of the Holy Spirit. You find that something has changed. The resurrection and the proclamation of Jesus in his glory, in his majesty, in his dominion and authority that was evident in his, in his resurrection had a life-changing regenerating effect, we presume, upon his family. And his brothers not only went on to affirm that he was not a brother in the flesh, but a brother who was, became flesh, but was God eternally prior to. In Jude, we'll see even in the course of this message that Jude gives one of the most profound acknowledgments of Jesus' divinity in the entire Bible. This is a profound thing indeed. Assuming Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, we find that the Spirit was at work, even in his own family, revealing to them the truth of Christ. And how did they come to the knowledge of the gospel? The same way you and I have, through the proclamation of the work and the glory of Jesus. The works of Jesus in his redemptive work on Calvary and his triumphant work in the resurrection, when they were proclaimed, when they were revealed to Jude, he repented and believed. Isn't this encouraging? That same move of the Holy Spirit, that same means of arresting the heart, and the same means of awakening a once-dead sinful individual is alive and well today. If you confess with Jude today the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of Christ, then you are joining the confession of the saints of old, even Jesus' own family members, who share what? A common salvation with you. So this is the author, James, likewise a brother of Jesus, became an important leader in the church. Jude no doubt served alongside him in some capacity and the advancement of the cause of Christ was going forth through vessels like this. A handful yes, but powerful confession and powerful fruit was yielded to the glory of God through the obedience of these Jesus first wave of disciples. So that's the author. Who's the audience? Well, he writes, continuing in verse uh, 1b, to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So these he describes later as sharing a common salvation. So Jude doesn't consider himself special because he was in the family of Christ. In fact, he doesn't even mention that overtly. Instead, he says that those who are bound together in common union or family are are uh, unified on the basis of the saving work of the Lord, not by virtue of privileged birth. And so this is to whom he writes, those who share a common salvation, other believers. There's two triads, which means groups of three, that he uses to poetically and beautifully describe the church. The first group of three, the key words are called, beloved, and kept. That's the second half of verse one. And then verse two, the second group of three is mercy Peace and love be multiplied to you. So one describes the essence of the members of the church. They are the called, the beloved, and the kept. And the other describes the benefits and the blessings that come by way of being the church. We receive as the church mercy, peace, and love. This is his audience. Now, ultimately, the confession of the faith of Jude is evident in who he understands his audience to be. Though there is cause for warning and there is dangerous territory the church is entering in, he trusts that the words of the, uh, the inspired apostles, the word of God, and the power of the Spirit will ultimately preserve the church. Jude believed, if you will, in the perseverance of the saints. And this is why he positively and encouragingly confesses that those to whom he writes who will hear and who will act upon his words are the called, the beloved, and the kept. Beautiful words, and aren't they reassuring? If you are a true believer in this place, you are so because God, by His sovereign Holy Spirit, had called you out of darkness into life. Imagine going to a graveyard. Maybe you've heard this illustration before. The Bible speaks in the book of Ephesians that the state of the human condition, the state of the human soul, is dead in its trespasses and sins. The gospel goes forth, though, to the graveyard of those dead in their trespasses and sins and says, Arise! confess the Lord Jesus Christ and be renewed and resurrected in the understanding of his salvation. And so in this graveyard, as the gospel is proclaimed, there are those appointed for salvation who arise out of the tomb of their spiritual death and confess faith in Christ. This is the power of the call of God. The power of the call of God is not an invitation persuading the human will on the basis of some slick, you know, marketing campaign by a so-called seeker-sensitive, you know, megachurch pastor. That's not what the call is. No, the call is like Jesus calling Lazarus, come forth. And a four days dead stinking man arises from the grave and take off his grave clothes and confesses that Jesus Christ is his Savior. Savior from death proven in that instance that the power of the Holy Spirit, the word of Christ, can call someone forth from the dead. And if you've been called forth from the dead spiritually, it is no less a miracle than that of Lazarus coming out after four days entombed in Bethany at the word of Jesus Christ. This is who Jude writes to, the called. But not just called, but beloved. Jesus loved Lazarus he went, he took that journey because in his heart was moved. Uh, kids, what's the shortest verse in all the Bible? Shortest verse, just, who's memorized that one? Jesus wept. Raise your hands if you've memorized that. I'm, some of you, maybe you just did. It's so short, it's easy to memorize, of course, the easiest perhaps in all of scripture. But that verse is profound, it's powerful. Why did Jesus cry at the tomb of Lazarus? It's because he was beloved. Jesus loved Lazarus. Now, Jesus has the power to raise raise his people from the dead, but he also has a covenant bond and union and friendship and communion with them such that they are his friends. They are bound to him in that unbreakable family tie that is part and parcel of who we are as the church and who we are in our relationship with the Lord. We are one with Christ. Christ is spoken of as our brother. God is spoken of as our father. And even in affectionate terms as Abba or beloved, we see the scriptures talking about that adoptive relationship where God spent the highest, paid the highest price, the blood of his own son to purchase that, those for whom he set his love upon. And so we love him because he first loved us and gave himself as a propitiation, as the just payment for our sin on Calvary. This is who Jude writes to, the called and the beloved. And furthermore, our faith is encouraged as we read, if we can truly place ourselves as the recipient of this letter, as much as we are the church, we are the called, we are the beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The keeping power of the Holy Spirit will use words of warning, use words of conviction, will use repentance, will use the encouragement of the saints will use his word equipping and causing us to stand even when our faith is challenged to preserve the church. Jude sees his words as a means whereby the true church will be kept. She will persevere. We confess in this church, generally speaking, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And what this means is that for those who are truly saved, they will not be lost because our shepherd, our great shepherd, is such a good shepherd that not one sheep will be lost from his fold. But the good shepherd does, in that picture, Psalm 23, use his rod and use his staff to correct, to reprove, to steer and to guide us into what? Streams of living water and pastures overflowing with the nourishment of the soul that we need. And so we are the called, we are the beloved and kept for Jesus Christ. And when we see this language for Jesus Christ, we're reminded that you and I are trophies that show off the power of Jesus. If he can save such decrepit and unworthy sinners like you and I, if this motley crew here gathered in Cross Lake, Minnesota is able to testify to his glory by a changed heart, it's nothing that we've done but all of him. And when Jesus arose from the dead and the great harvest sickle went forth to reap for himself his just a payment or his rewards to his suffering, that sickle has gone out through history and is yet reaping a harvest even in our day. And with every soul that comes in to the kingdom, it shows off the glory and the honor, the saving power, the worth, the works, and the attributes of Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to be reminded of these things because they encourage our souls, they give us confidence, and they remind us of the means that God prescribes to keep us. Who is the author? James, the brother of Jesus. and He's our brother as well, in Jesus. Who is the audience? We are. Who are we? The called, the beloved, and the kept. And not only does that describe the church in essence, but furthermore, through the gospel, what do we receive? Mercy, peace, and love. Building on what we said before, the Christian life begins with mercy. The unmerited favor of the Lord extended to us in the gospel. But what does that yield? Peace. No longer are we at war, at enmity with God. No longer are we an enemy of the Holy One. But now we stand in His presence and in His favor and enjoy, even as is pictured at His table, sweet communion and fellowship. Mercy leads to peace. And as we realize that and grow in our understanding, our sense of love for the Lord grows proportionally with it. And so does our peace with one another as we forgive as we've been forgiven. And as we appreciate one another more, as we see each other as the blood-bought saints and as the family of God. And as we experience this Or This growing sense of peace with the Lord, peace with one another, there's also a growing sense of love within the body of Christ. So this is the audience of Jude's letter. And now we turn to the occasion. Beloved, there is a danger on the horizon. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he's bursting at the seams with a positive proclamation of salvation. Yet he has a second motivation and he finds it necessary to include in verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Common salvation and contend for the faith. The first motivation to write is positive, to remind the church of the glories of Jesus Christ. The second motivation is uh, to stand against something or to prepare for war. It's a call to arms. It's a contending for the faith, which means to fight or to stand or to push back or to defend with all means necessary so that you don't lose what is worthy of keeping and is threatened by whatever enemies that might surround you. So first, what the church must stand for, our common salvation, and what she must stand against, the heresies, the false teaching, and the deception of the evil one. And what do we stand, what are we fighting for? Well, Jude describes our cause as the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints. This is a powerful phrase. To contend, it's like I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once-for-all delivered to the saints. Think of that, a phrase and its implications. Once-for-all, universal, absolute, objective, revealed, the gospel. It is not up for review, alteration, adjustment, subjective interpretation. It is not dynamic. It's not changing or mutable. It's not evolving. It's not progressive. How many false ideas and heresies today fail that very test? The faith that some people proclaim today, like God based upon his love is accepting of all sexual identities. That's a popular message that we hear. I heard that one recently when we were out preaching on the street in Brainerd. Uh, God commands us to love everybody, therefore we accept everybody on their own subjective terms. Nope, that is not true. The Lord has delivered to us a once and for all faith for which we are to contend it's not up for review it's not up for alteration or adjustment and there is nothing progressive in the sense that with the new unfolding cultural realities our idea of christianity needs to adjust and to change to whatever our preferences are at any given time no in times where the enemy would like to lie about these things we are to fight for the universal absolute objective true and revealed gospel in the scriptures this is the once and for all faith that we are to contend for. Are we fighting for it? And what does that fighting look like? Well, first of all, it would, that fighting looks like discerning enemies of that once for all delivered, uh, faith delivered to the saints, who they are and what they say, and then secondly, proclaiming the truth against them. So this brings up point number two. Jude opens his letter with reference to the church author, audience, and occasion, and secondly, false teachers, false teachers as undercover enemies. Notice what he says in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There is so much packed in to this small book and even that small verse, verse 4. And three things at least we learn. First of all, these enemies of the church were preemptively condemned. They were anticipated and called out even before they appeared. Secondly, we know that they're enemies because they pervert the gospel. They pervert the grace of our God. And thirdly, they deny the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, Jude says, preemptively condemned. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. So, Jude is no stranger, of course, to the words of Christ, especially assuming that he is his own brother. And among the most important words, well, I guess we would, it wouldn't be quite right to categorize one, some words of Jesus as more important than others, but there is a collection of teaching that is quite famous and rightly so, because it's a summary of so much that Jesus exhorted during his ministry, and that would be the great Sermon on the Mount, recorded at length in the book of Matthew. And when you return to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking with authority by the way that shocks the most learned among them, even though they did not repent and believe. And among the authoritative proclamations of Jesus towards the end of his great sermon comes to us in verse 21. Listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, "'Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness.'" Prior to that, Jesus has issued a warning, verse 15. He said this, "'Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves.'" And do you notice the parallels between what Jesus prophesied would happen and what Jude is acknowledging in the early church? There are going to be dangers that the church faces: false prophets, false teachers. But they will come in as undercover enemies. Jesus, in Jesus' analogy here, in, in his illustration, they are like uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Outwardly, they appear to be one, uh, one of us, and in agreement with us, part of the church. Yet inwardly, according to their intentions. Their teaching and their design, they're there to destroy and to steal and to wreck what God has done. They are plants. They are ravenous wolves. How do we tell the difference? Jesus goes on to give instruction. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, what Jude is reminding the church of is that even though we face enemies, we face them with confidence knowing that Jesus prophesied that they would be here. We, if we know the scriptures, are not blindsided by the challenges of our age. We're not surprised that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if we know the Scriptures, take them seriously, we are ready for them when they appear. And we avail ourselves, if we follow the Scriptures, of the discernment that is necessary to tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf, even though on the surface they may look the same." And Jesus describes this as fruit assessment, if you will, taking a look at the, ben, or the, the fruit and that which you can tell where roots are located by what appears on the branches. There's a relationship between the two. And this is the analogy he uses for us to discern those who are enemies among us. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, Jude says, that would be your wolves in sheep clothing. But listen, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, so forth. So this preemptive condemnation, both Jesus prophesying that they would be there and His Word going back in ages past, telling us that there will be enemies amongst us, gives us confidence. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, but they weren't unnoticed to God. They weren't unanticipated. This isn't a crisis that we are unprepared for if we pay attention to the Word. No, these were long ago designated for this condemnation just as God called you to believe in Him if you are a true believer today. So there are those who are designated to demonstrate the glory of God by being an object of His wrath. You may have a problem with that, but if you do, you have a problem with Scripture. That very truth, by the way, is something that false teachers seek to avoid. You know, This week I came across some teaching that was dancing around the wrath of God. And you could listen to this individual speaking about heaven, hell, the Bible, ultimate realities that are taught therein. And you can tell that they were very nervous about confessing the simple truth that the justice of God requires wrath against sin, that his holiness is manifest and demonstrated by the wages of sin being poured out on those who deserve it. Because God is glorified when a just payment is levied against when that indictment and that payment is issued from the court of glory against those who offend him. We call that justice in our own court systems and rightly so. But the perfect judge and the perfect court who sees all and has omnipotently and omnisciently balanced all and will, this will be evident on that great and final day, the ultimate judge is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are those who are called who trust that their payment for their sin was taken by another, namely Jesus. And that's a glorious thing. God has sovereignly appointed them for salvation, the scriptures say, in other places. But there are also those who from long ago were designated for condemnation. And herein, God, in His sovereignty, and unknown to Him alone, will uh, show forth His glory by vessels raised up for dishonor, Romans 9, and show forth His grace and His, or not, show forth His justice and His glory by bringing condemnation against His enemies. So when you understand these categories proclaimed in Scripture, it ought to give us a sense of weighty truth. Suddenly, The message of the gospel is not just an optional thing that we present to people that they should try and see if it doesn't improve their life, but instead a command to repent or else. Repent or else. And that message comes forth in the context of Jude's instructions, both as an admonition for us to be clear in gospel proclamation and also as confidence that although Christ has enemies, They will not get away with it. Even if they die in their sins, they will face him as their judge, and they will be condemned. So this is the message. So false teachers, as undercover enemies, are preemptively condemned. And they're prophesied about by Jesus himself in Matthew 7, for example, and other portions in the Word. Now, what is it that they stand for that helps us discern the rotten fruit of these corrupt trees, if you will? using the analogy of Jesus. Well, among the other rotten fruits, Jude says that these are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grace of God into sensuality. So uh, finding license for sins of indulgence. Uh, there, I did a study one time of those vice lists, sometimes they're called, sins that Paul speaks against in catalog form, time and again in his epistles. And it occurred to me that, generally speaking, you could organize them in two categories, sins of self-indulgence and sins of schism. So there's those sins of, you know, that separate people and cause them to fight with one another, and then there's these sins of self-indulgence that seek, and, and both are in this category of ungodliness, perverting the grace of God. The grace of God, when rightly understood, knows that there is just penalty for sin, and Christ has paid it, and that living in faith and in light of that truth is to embrace the godliness and the manner wherein is worthy of our call, as Paul says. Therefore, the fruit of someone who realizes the gospel recognizes that sin is shameful, and Christ has not died that we might continue in sin. Never let it be said, Paul says. But instead, Christ has died to set us free from the curse and ultimately the presence of sin. And thus, the believer's heart has changed and his affections change and he begins to, to hate his sin more and more and to desire to be like the Lord. We call this sanctification. But not so with ungodly people. They will extort and twist the word of God to provide license to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. What is sensuality? It's living according to one's senses. Later, as Peter uses similar language, uh, Jude will compare this kind of thinking and this kind of worldview to that of an irrational beast. Living life according to your base fleshly appetites. And this uh, is a, a problem and this is the rotten fruit of the wolves and the false teachers. And it goes beyond just making excuses for sin, let me suggest. If we, what are, so in perverting the gospel and the grace of God into sensuality, what is denied, we might ask? Well, you deny the objective categories of covenantal grace. So the objective categories that once for all faith delivered to the saints assumes a divine holiness. The Lord is holy, perfect, just, righteous, and true. There is a law of God. He has a standard whereby righteousness is accurately measured and judged, and anything falling short of His law is sin. There are moral absolutes. The truth of what is right and wrong never changes, but like God and and as a manifestation, if you will, of His character, is as immovable as He is. There is special revelation. These things are known to us. God has revealed His standards of righteousness in His holy word. There is such a thing as falling short of God's glory, we call that sin. There is such a thing as accountability and reckoning for that crime against Him, that would be judgment. And there is such a thing as salvation by His grace from what we deserve, redemption, through a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, propitiation. So these are the gospel categories that are rejected in sensuality. So if someone elevates the autonomy of man and his own experience, then these objective categories are lost or left or rejected, and instead we seek to interpret reality based on our subjective experience. And the ultimate standard of understanding things becomes subjective human perception. So living according to one's experience, uh, exalting oneself as God, not seeing a universal standard over us, not acknowledging God's objective truth, not acknowledging, in four words, according to Jude, the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of Jesus Christ. Anything short of that is perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and lifting up an idol above him, namely ourselves, in living in light of that. These are the undercover enemies and the rotten fruit that they produce, and we need to have discernment to recognize it. Furthermore, and finally in verse 4, they deny the exclusivity of Jesus. So they, uh, the ungodly pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Isn't this interesting? Again, assuming Jude is Jesus' half-brother, he is so changed, and his eyes are opened so thoroughly that he refers to his half-brother as his master and Lord he has come to the knowledge that Jesus Christ is not merely human. He's not merely the, a great teacher or maybe the greatest that ever lived. He is not just a repository of wisdom literature on the shelf of human experience next to, um, you know, Siddhartha and New Age teachings and kind of mystical pursuits and general spirituality and things that people celebrate as ways to open up, you know, the subjective experience of the soul to explore new realms in the more supernatural. All these things are uh, loosely defined false religious notions and ideas. No, we have a clear and authoritative voice that defines for us what spiritual reality and truth is, and it is our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And as he has said, so every true believer confesses there is what, but one way, one truth, and one life. There is no actuality of the spiritual potential through psychedelics and mushrooms sufficient to open one's eyes or to negotiate life or to cure salvation. That sounds absurd as I say it, but if you tune into any of the secular ideas that are common these days, what you find is in the vacuum that our secular society has created, a yearning desire in many people to experience another realm that everyone deep inside knows exists. But for many, the closest thing to salvation they have available to them is psychedelics. Well, they won't save, and they won't achieve anything lasting or sufficient to uh, put you in the right frame of mind or place in life, to understand, no, the only person, the only way to be right with God and to have your spiritual condition addressed is through our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, it's interesting to see in Scripture that when demons manifest themselves, demonic possession is present, or today we call some of these episodes, you know, mental health incidents or whatever, what is common and really stark and, and dramatically illustrated is, I guess the technical term would be a megalomaniacal, like a self-exaltation to the point of uh, blaspheming Jesus Christ and seeing oneself as Jesus or something like this. We hear these things and we find, oh, that person's lost their mind and they're crazy, and in part that's true. But there's a reason why sound, lack of soundness of mind manifests itself in self-exaltation. It's because deep within the core of every sinner is the lie that I can be as God. And deep within the core of every sinner is a heart of blasphemy that Jesus Christ is not truly master and Lord. No, I want to be master. I want to be Lord. For those who repent and believe, they turn from their sin, their self-exaltation, their self-autonomy, their self-importance, their belief in that original lie that I can be as God discerning and determining for myself right and wrong. And they understand that Jesus is their master and their Lord and the only way. All heresies and all philosophies and all spiritual exploration and all sense of self-importance denies the exclusivity of Jesus. And this is a through line for all unbelief, perverting the gospel, denying Jesus the only way of salvation. And this is what false teachers stand for. And if you look under the veneer of their sheep suit, this is what you will find, a wolf growling underneath, denying the exclusivity of Christ. Finally, this morning, we turn to Jesus himself. Jude opens his letter with reference to the church, to false teachers, and thirdly, to Jesus as Master and Lord revealed in Scripture. And notice the uh, references associated with Jesus in verses 5 through 7. He writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Pause there. Now at first we might read that and miss something profound. If we read too quickly and don't give it much thought. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, this is the reference that I spoke of before as one of the most profound uh, acknowledgments and confessions of the divinity of Jesus. If you were to ask somebody the question, who led Israel out of bondage in Egypt? Well, we go back to Deuteronomy, or we go back to Exodus at the calling of Moses. And in chapter three, verses three through six, without time to turn there, but you'll recall a burning bush is present. And the presence of the Lord It's manifest in this form, something like a theophany, a a, a tangible manifestation of the presence of God such that the holiness of the situation demands an act of worship in Moses to remove his shoes. And this, this voice of authority and proclamation coming forth from him, who made your mouth, what's your name, what should I say? I am the I am. This is Yahweh speaking from the bush. This is Yahweh proclaiming to his servant, That he is sovereign and he is Lord and he will save his people. He would deliver them out of bondage. And he will do so by picking a fight with the most powerful of all the enemies you could imagine. The sovereign of the empire, Pharaoh himself. And he will display his glory through ten plagues. And in each one the supernatural evidence of the God of creation and the God of salvation will be displayed on the theater of man's false authority as... The wizards are dethroned and Pharaoh is humiliated and his firstborn son is killed and the life-giving source of Nile turns into a picture of death as it runs with blood and the cattle die and the plagues come and the darkness falls, proving that God, the maker and creator of heaven and earth, causes the sun to rise and to set at his perfect and precise command and those who deny this are worthy of judgment. Let my people go. Who was this speaking? This was Yahweh. This was the Lord of the universe. This was the sovereign, the Messiah. This was the creator of heaven and earth. And this was, according to Jude, Jesus himself. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is Yahweh. That's Jude's confession. Jesus is God. Jesus is sovereign. Again, Those final words of doxology come to mind. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is majestic. He has dominion and he has authority. What kind of majestic authority and dominion does he compel? The same kind of that emanating presence of God from that bush that was not consumed by the divine flame that commanded Moses in an act of worship to remove his shoes and to submit to the Holy One. Jesus is master and Lord. He's revealed in scriptures. And he is the one responsible for salvation from the exodus in Egypt. And he likewise is the one responsible for salvation, the exodus, from sin itself. Jude understood the connection. That this picture of salvation from the exile under the threat and under the domination of Pharaoh's Egypt was a picture of the exile of sin. And just as Jesus led his people out of that typological picture of of abuse and oppression and, uh, you know, uh, circumstances, imprisonment that they deserved, if you will, so Jesus leads his people out of the oppression and the judgment of their own sin in the gospel. Secondly, there's an apostate reckoning that demonstrates Jesus' authority. Again, without time to turn there in Deuteronomy 32:15 through 29. Moses, that's his summary song. He's recounting in poetic form in this uh, kind of summary of the experience of God's people in the wilderness. How the Lord led them out and how he blessed them and how they were undeserving, how he provided for their every need and how he disciplined them and chastened them and killed many of them with plague when they disobeyed. Jude likewise recognizes that this is the hand of Jesus Christ, both in salvation and in condemnation and judgment. Whereas he saved the people out of the land of Egypt, he goes on to confess afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. When tens of thousands die by plague, When those who refuse to look to that bronze serpent set up as a pole in the wilderness, which we find later confessed by John a picture of Jesus to come, made a curse and standing on a tree for us. If those who refuse to look to that picture of salvation and believe are bitten by the vipers and that venomous snake sends them to the condemnation and death, who is responsible for that? Is that just a random act of nature, a random calamity? No, there are no random facts in the universe governed by a sovereign God. That was the judgment of Jesus Christ on the unbeliever, and it happened time and again. Jesus, Jude introduces us to Him in His letter as Master and Lord revealed in Scripture. He is the one who saved Israel from the exodus in Egypt. He is the one who brought reckoning on the apostates, that is, those who fell away from their once-confessed faith and did so in incidents like I described, poisonous vipers taking out the unbeliever. Or, as Jude goes on to reference in verse 11, Korah's rebellion. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Those who are not true believers and who demonstrate their wicked hearts, pervert the gospel as license for sin and so forth, what are they like? And how does Jesus exercise his authority and power and dominion over them? They are like the rebels who joined in Korah's rebellion, stood against the authority of God vested in his servant Moses. Kids, what happened to the followers of Korah that day? Do you remember? Remember what happened? So Moses said, okay, if you're with Korah, you stand over there. If you're with the Lord and me, you stand over here. And then all of a sudden something happened. You guys remember what it was? giant earthquake and? That's right. The ground split open and swallowed them. Exactly right. That was a dramatic display of the authority and dominion of Jesus Christ. Jude references this in verse 11, even as he alludes to events like this in verse 5. It was Jesus afterward who destroyed those who did not believe. So that speaks to his earthly dominion, but he goes further still in verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their possession, position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here Jude expands the scope of the majesty and the dominion and the authority of Jesus, his Lord, not only over earth, but over the heavenlies as well. Not only the natural human beings, but over the supernatural celestial or heavenly beings as well. So we assume that the celestial reckoning refers to events like the fall of the angels refused they followed the devil and refused to follow the Lord and were cast out of his presence in that uh, ancient moment of reckoning where the angels were held accountable to the law of God and the authority of Jesus Christ kicked out angels, these celestial beings that we can't really comprehend given our own limitations populating another realm, supernatural entities, yet they are under the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is master and Lord, not only of the destiny of human beings, but the destiny of angels. He has saved his people in the Exodus. He has brought condemnation on the unbeliever, and he has destroyed and cast out of the holy presence of God Almighty, even rebel angels who can stand before him. And the answer implicit is, of course, is no one. Finally, as Jesus is introduced to us as Master and Lord revealed in Scripture, uh, in our text today, Jude cites what I call an event oracle. This would be the incident in Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire couple thoughts on this, and then we'll close in Revelation 20, if you want to turn there. This event oracle, it's an event, something that happened in Scripture, but also an oracle. It's a pattern or a type, it's a picture of things to come. You know, the uh, unbeliever, or let's say the wolf in sheep's clothing, the heretic and the false teacher of our day, they like to dismiss events like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're nervous about proclaiming the judgments of God over a people well-deserving, especially if the fire that fell from heaven is on account of their sexual immorality, even sexual perversion, like homosexuality and otherwise. It is a perverse virtue to accept people's sexual subjective identity today as the marginalized and oppressed, and it's our obligation to tolerate and to affirm their lifestyles. And so the, the, false, the uh, ravenous wolf of our day, the unbeliever in, wolf's, in uh, sheep's clothing, would seek to recast the gospel to accommodate these new ideas of personal sexual identity and so forth. So a message from Sodom and Gomorrah, they seek to dismiss such a thing and to write it off. They'll go to passages that talk about the inhospita- inhospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah and say, oh, it's really just a judgment on people who weren't you know, letting uh, welcoming neighbors into their home. Or they'll say, you know, all told in the scriptures, very little is spoken about the so-called sin of homosexuality oh really? Why don't you turn to the Bible itself and see what the significance of the Sodom and Gomorrah judgment holds? In other words, when we read that story, what are we to conclude? Jude authoritatively, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That what? That God will judge the sexually immoral and those who pursue unnatural desire. It can't be any clearer and we muddy it up in our sin. And It's only the false teaching of the unbeliever that distorts this clear, proclaimed truth. And this is an example of where we must stand and what we must stand against. Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an event to proclaim to us the reality of the nature of God, the nature of sin, and that we must cling to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we, in perverting God's law, deserve hellfire judgment and will receive it if we don't have a sufficient sacrifice to die in our place. Jesus is master and Lord revealed in all the scriptures, not only as savior, but as sovereign, as judge, the one who renders us justified upon the cost of his blood or sends us out of his presence forever, condemned to the lake of fire, depart from me. I never knew you if we do not repent. These are the truths we're called to proclaim to stand upon. So, what does Sodom and Gomorrah speak to? What is it a picture of? It's a reminder of things to come. Things like what? Well, if we turn to Revelation 20, we see the picture of final judgment. And what in typological form was symbolized in Sodom and Gomorrah, now we see in consummate prophecy, or prophecy and consummation in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the thrones, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. This event that spoke of events to come, Sodom and Gomorrah, it, there is a purpose and a reason why God used the instrument of fire to destroy this perverse and wicked city. Who are these people? These were, Where did this happen? These were pagan cities. They were even outside of the covenant people of God. They were rebels on the outskirts. Why did this come upon them? They were perverting the created order. Early forms of heresy also perverting the created order and the clarity of God's word, even in the times of Jude. So what What happened? God sent judgment by fire. He sent judgment by fire according to the authors of Scripture to give us a foreshadowing of judgment to come. Now, thank God the Bible doesn't close there. These aren't the last words. In the book of Revelation, we have this glorious picture in chapter 21 as we continue to read. "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more.' And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think of the contrast between those screaming in the lake of fire and those celebrating with voices raised and hearts ablaze with the joy and love of God the Father and this glorious consummate union, this beautiful beautiful, uh, reconciliation that is pictured in this language, verse 3. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold... The dwelling place of God is with man. That's Emmanuel realized, by the way. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. They go on to say the cowardly and the faithless, etc. immoral, sexually immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, liars, they will get their portion in the lake of fire. That's the true either or, the ultimate either or in scripture, and that's what Jude reminds us of. Today I trust that the communion table and its elements will taste all the sweeter to us, given our understanding of the alternative. There are only two destinies for all humanity. Either they will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and the other rebel angels, or they will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that water of life that Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, supplies eternally. That water that sprung from His side when He took the pain of our sin upon the cross is a picture of the source of the life-giving, abundant, uh, eternal bread of life that He supplies in His death on Calvary for us. And what does this yield for the saints who truly stand upon the Lord, contend for the once for all faith delivered to the saints? A blessed communion feast, gloriously awaiting those who share in this common salvation that Jude speaks of. Therefore, today, saints, as we are reminded of, things, of these things, may we trust and proclaim the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ. Think of those things, the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ, proclaimed in His Word and pictured at His table before. And it is this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that yields in His death on Calvary, access for us to enter boldly to the throne of grace, be reconciled to the Father, and joyfully feast with him eternally as our bread of life. Praise his holy name. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of Scripture that stirs our hearts with both conviction and praise. Conviction, Lord, that if there are any idols or sins that we uh, have let ourselves indulge, that they must burn, Lord, and Jesus Christ has paid for them on, the Calvary. on Calvary, and we're thankful for this. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us grace to walk in a keeping short accounts with you in repentance and faith, that we would, Lord, appreciate the joy and the calling and the weighty purpose for which you have ordained that we walk with you and proclaim the news and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grant us grace and weapons to contend for the once for all faith delivered to the saints. And as we approach your table today, I pray that you would remind us both in the hearing of your word and the partaking of these elements of the cost of our salvation. To the praise and glory of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that in him is all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And it is in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.